0: recovery elevator episode 267
1: but just to like be in your ear and and to confirm like you're s- still you you're actually better than you were when you're drinking you're the truest version of yourself you're the best version of yourself
0: Welcome to the recovery elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. We have Lucas. He's been alcohol free for 465 days, 100 days over a year, or from November 13, 2018. Lucas is 31 years old. He's from Fairfax, Virginia. And in his interview, he talks about how he found comfort when the idea of moderation no longer existed. That might be a strange one for some of you out there, but if you've reached that moment as well, it's incredibly comforting. It feels good. It's like all this energy was just released internally. Well, this episode about Facing Crisis was well-timed. I record episodes about four weeks in advance, and I'm recording this segment three days before the release date of this podcast episode to give you some updates and some encouragement during these unprecedented times. First off, I'm going to state the obvious. A drink won't make any of this better with the coronavirus. So please, stick to the plan, stay the course, and use this unknown as sobriety fuel. I know it, and you know that deep down you have everything needed to make it through this crisis, which on the other side, I know there will be something better for us without a drink. And if your plans of living life alcohol-free have gone completely out the window, that's okay. I'm still here and still supporting you. Get back on it. Each day, every moment is a new opportunity to turn it around. So if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you've heard me say the magic, the wholeness, your new alcohol-free life all exists in the unknown. And we have all been given a heaping dose of the unknown right about now. I personally have felt it all. These times are exciting, adventurous, and I'll admit, there have been times when I have felt fear and I've been scared. It's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. And keep in mind those uncomfortable feelings, the low vibrational emotions such as fear, resentment, anger, and guilt will only be exacerbated with a drink. So stick with me. Stick to your routine. Listen to past episodes of this podcast and stay the course. Think about joining our online, private, unsearchable Community Cafe RE. Please do not isolate. We've got daily online meetings and webinars. I've leaned into this community so much the past couple weeks. A couple quick announcements. So much has happened in the past two to three weeks. The Recovery Elevator live event, Dancing with the Mind, scheduled June 11th to June 13th in Denver, Colorado, is still a go at this moment. I'm moving forward in my routine and future plans until I'm notified the event won't be taking place. So at this moment, it's on. Also, big announcement right here, this will not be the last recovery elevator event. So many people have reached out to me when I made the announcement that it was going to be the last event that I've restructured some things. I've I've, I've taken on additional help and support, and there will be more events. Again, there will be more events. These things are too magical, too powerful to stop doing. Um, So I do plan on doing Costa Rica and another Bozeman Retreat in summer 2021. Those are the plans at this moment. And this Thursday, April 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to be doing a free guided meditation webinar called Project Calm. Quantum science shows that we are all connected to the unified field of consciousness, and that separation is an illusion. When we gather in groups to meditate, both in person and virtually, to establish harmony, calm, inner peace, and stability, other beings across the planet will receive the benefits of our work. I really hope you attend this free webinar. Go to the homepage of recoveryelevator.com to register. Also on Monday, April 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'm doing a webinar with a spiritual teacher, Elaine Huang, titled Spirituality and Addiction. She'll cover how spirituality can help us depart from alcohol, how to connect to source, and so much more. This gal is incredible, and this webinar is also free, and you can register at the homepage of recoveryelevator.com. Okay, let's get started. I love this topic today. So today I want to speak to you guys about crisis, what crisis means, who's in crisis and what it represents. And after the interview with Lucas, I'm going to give you some scary stats about the next 40 years of your life and screen time. First off, can we just say this is one of the best onomatopoeias out there for crisis and an onomatopoeia is when the word suggests phonetically what it is. And confession, I had to Google this and also had to Google how to pronounce the word onomatopoeia. Okay, so say the word with me, crisis, crisis. God, just saying the word out loud invokes the blood pressure to raise. No one ever, even as a cruel joke, would name a pony or a kitten crisis. It just wouldn't happen. Gosh, what a strange word with so much meaning built into it. So first off, the English language does a shit job of defining what a crisis really is. It gets half of it correct, as in it's a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger, or when an individual loses his bearings and can no longer find the same meaning in life. Many of you just applied this definition to your drinking careers and came to the conclusion that you've been in crisis for years now. I know I was. Other languages do a much better job of accurately describing what crisis is. The word crisis in Chinese is composed of two characters. One is danger and the other is opportunity. In Sanskrit, it's called milkrit. And this word crisis is also coupled with opportunity. In fact, in many languages, the word crisis is coupled with an opportunity or that something better is awaiting you on the other side. In Greek, it means something is about to turn. And they often use this in an epidemic or a sickness or an illness means it's going to get better after the sickness. So you wouldn't be here as a human being if a species in the aquatic kingdom didn't face a serious crisis. Several hundred million years ago, after an ocean was divided due to cyclical ice ages, this body of water was shrinking when it was separated from the main body of water. And this means that all living organisms inside would perish, except a certain aquatic species who found themselves in this crisis had to do the unthinkable, which was to adapt to life on land or dry up. And since we're here, we know what happened to this aquatic species while in crisis, grew feet and began walking on land. So I can answer the question of who finds themselves in crisis with one word everyone finds themselves in crisis at one point or another in life. That's simply the contract that you signed up for as a human being. The difference is, we, as in those whose relationship with alcohol becomes problematic, reach a point when we are constantly in crisis and we have to face it. I know many will want to virtually slap me, but this is a good thing. Why? Well, you get the opportunity part of this deal faster, whatever it is. This better life, the other side, with more sunrises, sunsets, rainbows, unicorns, pet koalas, whatever you want, whatever you're envisioning, and this is going to look different for everyone, but if you do the work, episode 262, then you'll look back at this crisis as the best thing that could have ever happened for you. See how I switched that there? Didn't happen to you, it happened for you. So it's not about avoiding crisis as a human being on this planet, but meeting a crisis early and getting on to the next one, and then seeing how many crises you can fit into this lifetime. Yeah, I know. That sounds weird. So there is a crisis muscle. The more crises you face, you're going to get better at it. And I can tell you right now, with 100% certainty, the biggest crisis you're going to face is quitting drinking. Everything after that is going to be peanuts. If you make it through a Friday night without drinking in the previous 200 Friday nights you did drink, you just did a major bicep curl for the crisis muscle. You're getting better at this. You've heard me say countless times on the podcast that removing alcohol from your life isn't a sacrifice but an opportunity, and I still firmly believe this, but I also want to say there are times when you'll be saying to yourself, where the fuck is this opportunity that Paul speaks of, and that's okay. I simply want to plant the seed that this suffering, that this crisis is leading you. It's guiding you to something better, that it's serving an underlying purpose. Again, if you're not feeling very opportunity-ish right now at this moment in your journey, that's totally fine. In fact, if I were to go back to my younger self and say, hey, Paul, this is the opportunity of a, I think I would get punched in the face. So it's okay if you're not seeing it this way, but promise me something, listener, seriously, Promise me something right now, and that is you will stick with this long enough until you recognize the opportunity, you see it. And I don't care if you're sober for six months right now and you're still not seeing it as a crisis. I still want you to promise me this. Promise me this. Say this out loud. Say, hey, Paul, I promise you. I promise you that I will stick with this long enough to uncover what this crisis is trying to show me, to reveal it, to step into it, to live it, to let my authentic self be it. There's the word, to be it. Okay, we clear on that promise, listener? Are we clear on that? You dig? Are you with me? That's a big one. We're doing a big virtual pinky swear. Okay, we just put that one in the virtual webs forever. All right, here we go. As I mentioned, everyone experiences crises in life. But we are fortunate, as in this group of listeners, because for many of us, the pain points are so strong, so acute with alcohol, that we can't hide or pretend to keep together anymore. And we are forced to reach out. Then, there is a collective group of you working through this crisis together. Big word right there, together. This is the power of AA, Smart Recovery, Cafe RE, and other recovery communities. These are why gyms are so powerful. It's way more fun to work out with other people than in your basement. And there's an excellent movie that came out in 1984 that I can guarantee that almost everyone has seen that exemplifies this point perfectly. And it's with five high school students from different walks of life. They come together in crisis on a Saturday morning in detention under a power-hungry principal. What is this movie called? Well, it's The Breakfast Club. I understand your drinking probably hasn't uh, mirrored the exact plot of The Breakfast Club, but these students found themselves in crisis and had one of the best days of their life. If you haven't seen The Breakfast Club, if you're born in the 90s or the early 2000s, yeah, go watch it. Great movie. So speaking of Café Ré, being a collective movement of people dealing with crisis, let's hear from Café Ré. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or simply sober curious, you'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. And another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Lucas, my man, how are you?
1: Not too bad, Paul. How you doing?
0: Hey, Lucas, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink?
1: November 13th, 2018.
0: November 13th, 2018. You've got a year and some change away from alcohol. How's it feel, Lucas?
1: Feels fantastic. Um, today's actually day 465. The longest time I've ever been um, clean and sober from from alcohol, and every day I look at it as as a blessing. It really has allowed me to live a life in which I never really gave myself the chance to do to, before. So it's it's a journey in every sense of the word.
0: Yes, it is. I agree fully with that. And a hundred days over a year, fantastic stuff. It's a blessing. I love how you said that. And Lucas, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun?
1: So I am um, 32 years old. I was born and raised in the DC metro area. It's actually Fairfax, Virginia. Went to high school here, went to college in North Carolina and then another school in Texas. I'm currently married, got a beautiful wife. No kids yet. <laughs> Actually, one of her requirements before I could be a father was that maybe it'd be a good idea if I did get sober. I think it's fair. I, yeah, right? That I, I, was a fair trade, I, I figured. I'm a UPS driver. I've been driving for UPS for seven years. Great job. Got a, we've got a dog, so I guess my dog is technically my, my child what right now. I'm not saying that that's... <laughs> I'd say a Pitbull um, lab mix. I rescued them from a... Uh, shelter up in maryland oh, about cool. a year and a half ago yeah for sure and um what i like to do for fun i i mean i, I work out all the time i really started doing that again once i got sober because i had gotten away from a lot of the healthy healthier things in life and I, I like to see people some from my past life but a lot of new people that i've met through the program and hang out with them and and watch sporting events go to concerts that kind of stuff i'm still able to do and i, I feel lucky to be able to do that stuff for for fun now as
0: well Oh, when we say past life, you mean like when you were drinking or actually past life's other lifetimes?
1: <laughs> no, no, my um when I was drinking. Okay. That's what I meant
0: by past. I was life. like, Oh, we're going here right now, <laughs> early. All right, cool. <laughs> and uh what what's a sober concert you've been to?
1: I've gone to Kendrick Lamar. Um, which was actually one of the more yeah, which was one of the more enjoyable concerts. Um, Mr, that Mr. I had Duckworth. Gone to. I
0: think that's his real name, Mr. Duckworth.
1: <laughs> Is it? No yeah, way. It, I didn't know him as he calls himself he calls himself Kung Fu Kenny sometimes. Yeah, his, his real him. name
0: is not Kendrick Lamar. I think there's a Duckworth in there, but uh, anyways, it's a good concert. Uh,
1: interesting. Yeah, it was fantastic. He put on a heck of a show. He rapped all the lyrics, which um, I've been to some that don't always do that, and it's nice to see a guy get up there and be in the game enough, so to speak, to really deliver. You know the the lyrics of the song and he just it was phenomenal. I just there was a lot of energy and it was it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, speaking of rapping the lyrics, uh me and my one of my best friends Dusty, he's episode 204, we saw Bone Thugs and Harmony the other night live at a small venue in oh. Bozeman, Montana. There's like 200, maybe 150 people there. It was unreal how fast those guys could talk and rap and they all did it live. I mean, that was a nostalgic event and to do it without alcohol was was incredible.
1: Absolutely. I mean, to to be there and to have those kind of feelings, you know, come naturally and and to be able to really appreciate performances like that sober is, is a special thing. And it's something that I really, really enjoyed doing at that concert and I'm sure seeing bone thugs in an intimate setting like that is probably really, really cool. I'm actually envious of that.
0: And there's so many benefits to ditching the booze. And one small one is we edged our way up to about two or three people behind the stage or or like to the stage. And we never had to leave our spot to go get a drink. So we were just parked up there for Mm -hmm. like an hour and a half and people were leaving, coming back back up with drinks, which you didn't have to do that. Right. Uh, there's so many little benefits that we don't think about. And that was a huge one.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, I experience that same kind of thing when I go to sporting events. My dad is from Pittsburgh, and so I'm a diehard Pittsburgh sports fan, um, especially the the Penguins and the Steelers. And the Capitals, the hockey team here in, in Washington, D.C., is obviously very good. So when the Penguins come to play, I usually get to go see them. And I went a couple weeks ago on a Sunday afternoon and... I did not have to get up once to go to the bathroom and stand in a line and miss parts of the game because I was, you know, having beers in my hand. This time, I just got to hang out and actually sit through the entirety of the game and remember the game too, which was, you know, which is kind of nice, right? It's the whole reason you go.
0: Totally. You to remember the game. I remember the concert. And after the concert, another tailwind, I just drove home, not intoxicated, didn't worry about anything, just drove home safely. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That's a that's a major bonus too that I hadn't experienced either because I drove to that concert, the Kendrick concert. I drove as well, and being able to leave and drive by cops and not worry about staring in my rear view if those lights are going to turn on is a it's a pretty cool feeling
0: all right lucas let's get into your story lucas sent me an email where he discussed his feelings about moderate drinking how it's luxury, how it constantly tripped him up so i'm excited to talk to lucas about that so give listeners background with your drinking when did you first realize that it was becoming an issue that it was becoming problematic how much did you use to drink? Did you ever put any rules into place? Did you have a rock bottom moment? Um, and try to give us some ages or dates so we're chronologically up to speed, Lucas. I'm excited to hear it.
1: So, I started drinking when I was uh, 13 years old. I still remember the first thing I drank it was Old Knob Creek, Kentucky Bourbon or something. And I think that I realized pretty early on. And when I say pretty early on, you know, I started when I was 13. I'd say by the time I was 16 or 17, I would routinely black out from drinking. I grew up in a culture in which that was what we did. You partied, you drank, you drank to excess. So I don't think at the very beginning, you know, 13, 14, 15, I thought I had a problem. And then as 16, 17, 18 came around, and I was usually the one that would always overdo it so to speak and would be the always the one blacking out i started to realize that maybe i got something going on you know and maybe this is something in which i need to look at because it also runs in my family i have uh family members that uh, still drink and drink to excess and it's something that i had to start looking at
0: R- real quick and are you the, are you the only one in your family that has quit drinking
1: yes i am i actually well if you consider on my wife's side, which it is family now since we're married, sure. there's actually three people there's actually three people in recovery on that side. Hmm. But from yeah, from my side of the family, I'm I'm the only one that's that's so far knock on wood is, has allowed it to stick. My mother has, has tried but has has failed to be able to, to maintain sobriety. Sure. Okay. So that was a you know that was part of it as well. So I was kind of aware from my teenage years, that it could be a problem that could bleed into the rest of my life. But 17, 18, I mean, even for me through my early 20s, I wasn't the most mature person. So, you know, I progressed through my 20s, through college, continuing to drink the way that I did. You know, when I say what kind of drinking I engaged in, it was a lot of binge drinking. At first, it would just be on the weekends, you know, or at parties. And then I'm sure like a lot of people, it starts to be on Tuesday nights or Thursday nights. Or there's a hockey game on a Wednesday night. So then you start looking at how much I was fr- drinking and how frequent throughout the week it it became probably a four or five day thing, and it was always to excess. I don't think I ever sipped a beer or liquor or wine to say, "Hey, I'm just gonna have one or two and relax." It was always to get drunk. And as I got to my you know my my later twenties and 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 got sober as I was thirty, I really started to see the effect in which my behavior was starting to have on my life and my wife, obviously my job, the recklessness in which I was living in due to my drinking was, was definitely starting to become more and more noticeable. I would say, I think that it was something that was always inside of me. The idea that this is not sustainable. This kind of life is not going to bring, you know, what I want and when I think about like my my bottom, right, like some people, I believe, and I can only speak for myself, don't always have a bottom. I think that I was able to see mine. I think I was able to see the consequences that were looming for me, you know, just the, off the top of my head, losing my job, losing my wife, losing the life that I had fought so hard to to gain for myself. And that was a a, a major determining factor. in in being able to you know stabilize what I had going on because if I continued to drink the way that I was I was going to willingly and voluntarily throw away all of it because I was I was unwilling to change you know up until until I was 30
0: So Lucas um, let me let me add some ask for some clarification on that you were able to step back and almost with some clarity and and we call this playing the tape forward you were able to see if this continued that there would be a treacherous bottom ahead of you of losing those things you mentioned, the job, your wife, and probably much more. And you, but however, I think there's a lot of people that, that can do that as well. They can see the progressions where they was going, but they're still not able to stop. What, what do you think the difference is? Where did the clarity come from?
1: You know, people talk about like miracles. And And all those kind of things, um uh, I'm not the most religious person, but being in the program, you know I'm told a lot about that miracles do exist and they do happen. All I know is the morning that I woke up after a really bad night of drinking um, this was that was the um the night of the, of the thirteenth when I had my last drink, the morning of the fourteenth when I woke up my My wife was so distraught and I got up and was putting on my work clothes. And like, it was just another day and, oh, I just had another bad night of drinking. And I'm not sure if it was the look that she had in her and her eyes or the accumulation of all the bad feelings from all the bad mornings after all the bad nights of drinking, that there was this acceptance or, or gap in my denial that those thoughts that I had about watching it all go away was able to fill that gap for like a split second. I I remember I I was actually buckling my work belt and my wife asked me, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do as far as your life? Not like, what are you doing? Going to work? You know? And for whatever reason I was susceptible to the truth of the matter of what was really going on. And I stopped and I looked at her and I said, what do I, what what do I got to do? Where do I got to go? And she got on the phone and, called the rehab place that I went to and got that ball rolling so to speak and so I wish that I could pinpoint exactly what it was or or you know arrogantly think it was something that I did but I I just I was open to it and I was lucky enough to receive it and in that moment after that night it just it all changed I knew that everything I had had been worrying about was real that was the reality right was was all the bad things that were coming because of my drinking and if I wanted to live with my two feet on the ground and take hold of my life that I would have to remove the alcohol and it was just like a we call it a miracle call it chance i I'm not sure I just I'm very blessed to have it happen like that I wish that i could I could tell exactly what it was maybe it was the the rehearsing of it in my mind over and over and Finally, that voice that was telling me it was a problem got through to me.
0: Lucas, you said the word earlier, which was gap. And Eckhart Tolle talks about these gaps and the profoundness of these gaps and what they are, it's a lapse in thinking. It's where the thinking mind takes a break for just a split second and it sounds like your hand was on your belt buckle and it was accumulation of all the bad mornings, all the bad hangovers, all the bad nights of drinking, the sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's where there's a tipping point where the energy around your addiction matches the energy of your desire to depart from the the addiction, and there's this moment of clarity, is what we call it in, in, in the room, shall we say, but there's a gap in mind, there's a gap in thinking, and for some people, I know for myself, when I began this journey, there were no gaps. There were never gaps in thinking, but when there is a space, and it's this space where the divine wisdom, or whatever you call it, enters, and, and and these are so profound and it only takes a fraction of a second for somebody to have one where it completely changes the trajectory of their life. In fact, when the idea of the podcast came, it was something similar. I wasn't thinking, it was a gap in my mind and all of a sudden, boom, I looked up and I was like, a podcast, What? what does that mean? So it sounds like it was something similar. You had a gap in thought. Because I imagine previously, even you mentioned like 17, 18, you recognized it was a problem then, and as your twenties it got worse. You had previously been trying to think your way out of this, trying to con- conjure new ideas, and we'll talk about moder we'll talk about moderation shortly, but your your thinking was just going on and on and on and on about how you can solve this conundrum, this drinking problem but it only made it worse with thought. And finally, the conscious, the unconscious, the heart and soul got on the same page for one gap and said, Lucas, let's stop the thinking mind for a second and let something else come in. And that's what we call these gaps. That's the power of no mind and where an idea can flow through you. Is any of that resonating with you?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's exactly how it felt. It was just a, a joining of the worry of the the conscious mind being able to match the want to continue in the addiction to the want of ridding all that from my life. You know, the, like you said, the sick and tired of being sick and tired, it just, it lined up. I could feel it in my stomach, in my chest, whatever, in my heart. I, it just, it shifted in that moment. And because you know, and I, and I, I'm very blessed to have the support of my wife because it helped to have her there as well. Someone to recommend, okay, you can call this person. And I, you know, I called the the rehab center and that was in that gap that I kind of, once I felt that gap, once I I was able to see it, it's almost like tangible, right? I was able to like, keep that gap open because I think my body and mind was so tired of everything the way that it was, that it was like, well, let me keep this gap open because I've, I've never experienced this or even allowed this gap to exist in my life. So let's see what's going on with it and i think that is a lot what motivated me because i was so fed up and sick and tired of the way i was living so why not try something else and i think i was able to expound on that feeling and really expand that gap and and jump into it and start a new way of thinking
0: and lucas another way to label this or what to call it is an intense level of presence or an added layer of awareness that you hadn't experienced before. Now, many people, when they're driving, if they've ever almost hit a deer or an elk, or if they've ever had to swerve around a log in the road, or a traffic accident, or or they're just in a, in a scary situation where they actually stop thinking. The thinking mind will shut off, and you'll just react. You'll just act, and you'll swerve around the deer, the elk, the log, and afterward, you're gonna. It's almost gonna be euphoric, and you're gonna go, "Whoa! What in the hell just happened?" Um, You don't you don't black out you're fully conscious of what's happening, but you're not thinking you're not acting and I love how you said keep the gap open now listeners once this gap has once you've experienced this gap this intense level of presence there is a footprint in your consciousness if you've done it once you can do it again and and there's there's already neural memory of how to do that and keeping the gap open uh, this is incredible and I, I didn't have yeah I didn't have the gap when I started this journey, but it's imperative. We find ways to put ourselves in situations where gaps can happen. I want to talk to you about the the power of burning the ships. It sounds like when you had this gap, your wife was right there. And she, you, you immediately onboarded her onto your journey. How powerful was that to have the person probably that's closer to you in your life to bring her on is, is a big support on your journey.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's massive. You know, when, when, when I talk about it in the rooms, in the program, I've been very blessed and lucky to have a strong support system. And I, and I realize how important and how vital that is and paramount to one's sobriety. You know, my wife, my family, um, the friends that I still, still speak to from, from when I was drinking, you know, to now my sobriety, they all support me tenfold. And it's, it's so critical because it is a very hard thing to do. It's an extremely courageous thing to do and I'm not patting myself on my on my own back. I'm talking about anybody that wants to take on the beast of of addiction and to rid try and rid themselves of it and abstain from that. It is a massively intense and I think it's it's underrated how hard it truly is to con, to do it and to continue to do it. And so when you don't have a strong support system, that's a lot of weight to bear on your own shoulders. So I understand that sometimes people don't always have that from their family or from their friends or their loved ones. I think that they have the ability though, and hopefully there's some resources near them that they can go and kind of build that support system for them to be able to fall back on, you know, little things like my wife, even complimenting, obviously how much better the life is without the alcohol for her. Right. But just to like be in your ear and, and to confirm, like you're still you, You're actually better than you were when you were drinking. You're the truest version of yourself. You're the best version of yourself. To be able to have that in your corner is is huge. It's it's something that you can begin to almost, I don't know if take for granted is the right word, but sometimes you can forget about it because it is such a a strong thing in your life and it, it helps you maintain and keep your focus on the goal of sobriety, right? It's just, it's huge to be able to have that and be surrounded by that because it confirms you know everything that that I knew I needed to to get out of my life and it co- it confirms everything that I have in my life right the love and the ability to be there for people to be able to have that from someone as close as my wife is is huge to me I don't I don't think I could I could say that enough
0: lucas i agree with everything you said this is a difficult journey and nobody is asking you or me or any of the listeners right now to do it alone and we don't it doesn't have to be as hard as it has to be. We need to onboard the people closest to us in our lives. This is imperative. If you've heard Burn the Ships on the podcast, then you're listening, because I say it every single episode, this is probably the most important thing you can do on this journey. You first have to do it internally, you have to get honest with yourself, and once the internal declaration has been made, the external environment will always line up, you'll be presented with opportunities to be open, authentic, and upfront and burn the ships with people in your external life. and once those conversations have been had they can't be unhad and then that inevitably leads to accountability it leads to community and boom that's when the rubber hits the road and one more thing i want to comment on before we get back to the moderation that phase of your journey which is a difficult one for everybody in fact that was probably the most painful part of my journey when i was tiptoeing around moderation and still had ideas to try i want to talk to you about Um, One more thing about the power of these intense levels of awareness uh, higher levels of presence I did a YouTube video on this a couple months ago where the addiction will dissolve when you are experiencing higher levels of presence your addiction your your self-loathing the shame the guilt the depression the anxiety but for most pressing for us listening right now your drinking problem it only exists in the past and the future now academically we can read all day about this but until we experience an intense level of presence the gap that you felt we won't fully know this like the, the the heart and the stomach and the gut it, or all the energy centers that won't align to, to recognize this. But once we do experience a gap and only, you only need a fraction of a second, a second or a two, as I mentioned, it's going to leave a footprint and you're going to say, wait a second. In that moment, there were no problems. The addiction was gone. It was completely removed from my life. It didn't exist. And then after that, it's techniques, it's meditation, it's yoga, it's working with others, it's finding ways to find the, the to, to deepen with the sweet spot of the present moment. So let's go back a little bit to before you had your last drink and talk about moderation. And in your email, you said, when I began to wander down the path into the forest of fantasy, I have to continually remind myself that the trees I'm seeing do not exist. The moderation is all in my mind, and I need to realize that. I love that you said that. So talk to us about that phase of your journey, Lucas.
1: Yeah, so like most, I imagine you you go through the the thoughts of, well i can do this just a little bit less i can i can you know put a cap on my drinking i can moderate my drinking and i can only speak for myself when talking about moderation but i i don't believe it is a not an attainable thing for me i think it's a word that was made up in order to make yourself feel better and be able to convince yourself that you know we i can continue to have alcohol in my life when i talk about the force of fantasy when i start thinking about moderation it's unreality it doesn't exist that life that i was living while i was drinking is not real it is all made up it's like mcconaughey and the wolf of wall street it's a wazzy it's a woozy it doesn't exist it is not a thing and so when my mind and it still does when it starts to wander and to think about and romanticize my past behavior and my drinking and say well you could you could have a couple it's okay like you've done so well you're strong the second my mind starts to go that way, the second I stick a toe into that forest of fantasy, is the second it, it, it all falls apart. Like, I'm, I'm living in a dream state, it's not real. And that's what's so scary, is to be in a forest of fantasy, so to speak, is one of the most terrifying things that I could imagine for myself. And I lived there for an extremely long time. And now that I know where that forest ends and where the reality begins, I have no desire to go into that. And I'm able to luckily pull myself back, you know, from back into the clearing of sobriety, so to speak, before I start to tiptoe down that. Because moderation is not a thing for me. It's it's impossible. It doesn't, it's never existed. I tried to lower down and, you know, I'll only drink here, I'll only drink there. It never worked. And so now it's like a, it's like a thing I can't even entertain. And I'm, and I try my best and I put forth the most effort to stop myself and my mind in that train of thought going towards anything that has to do with moderation when it comes to alcohol.
0: Lucas, when I reached that realization, I felt two emotions nearly back to back. The first one was defeat. Oh my gosh, there are no more rules that, that I can try to moderate. And then immediately after, it was almost empowering. As It was like this huge amount of energy was just liberated because I no longer had to focus on ways to, to moderate, which were never going to work. So I first felt defeat and then afterward, I, I felt almost free. Did, was there a sense of liberation when you were done with that phase of moderation?
1: Absolutely. I mean, to be able to to realize, okay, this is right now sobriety where I am, stopping my mind from going into these these thoughts of moderation. It is extremely liberating. It's self actualization. It's the confidence that you build to realize, okay, like not only am I stopping this thinking now, I recognize that that thinking is is so far removed from what's really going on in the reality of my life that you do start to get a sense of strength from that. You feel truly that, you know, you're right where you are with your two feet on the ground, that you have that ability to say that's not, that's incorrect, you know, or that's false. Or like I said, that's unreality. To sit there and be able to now see that and know that, that I'm correct in that, you know, I'm not just telling myself things to make myself feel better. Once you realize that moderation is not a thing, it is a massive step in the right direction. I I thought for myself, you know, once I was able to kind of like shrug off the the chains of you know or the connections for, to my addiction, you know, moderation being one of those chains, it is freeing. You you realize I realized how foolish I was, and to be able to recognize that, it's great feeling, man. It's it's empowering for sure.
0: Lucas it sounds like one of the techniques you use to uh, to step away from moderation techniques when your mind says we can moderate is is, it sounds like you're stepping back in the mind as you're becoming the observer of the thinking mind. And I'm going to bring it back to the gaps right now, because this is what the power of it as well. It shows us who our true authentic self is, which is not the thinking mind. And so it sounds like you're stepping away and you're also, and you're becoming the observer, almost listening to the thinking mind and saying, okay, I hear you, but that's asinine. It's ludicrous. That's never worked. Is that a technique that you're using?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, my wife asked me a lot, like, do you still think about, you know, drinking and and the use and all that stuff. And I'd be lying if I said, I didn't think about it, but now I have the ability to step back. And like you said, be an observer, I can literally laugh at myself as my mind tries to run down back into that forest of fantasy. Right. I'm able to see that. And like I said, laugh and be able to talk myself back to reality so much quicker now at, you know, day 465 than I was at, 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 at day 45, right. I'm able to, to realize that each day I stay sober, I'm able to take a step back and observe and be taught cognizant of where my mind is going and how, how wrong it can be at times. Cause I'm prepared to have a little bit of that happen perhaps for the rest of my life. I'm not sure. You know if if my mind wanders but at least now i have the ability to counter that right to to see and recognize when i start going down that path in my mind to say no no no, no, no. that's all wrong and you know it's wrong so let's come on back you know to reality now bud and that's that's something i definitely do
0: lucas before we chat more about how you did it uh, i want to talk to you about adderall now for a lot of people it's not just alcohol and Um, I had to stop taking Adderall and you were up to 200 milligrams before you quit drinking. And for myself, I actually found I was more productive after I stopped taking my ADD meds, such as Adderall. What was your experience? How did Adderall play in that story and talk to us about quitting? And then what was it like after that?
1: So Adderall was something that I had come upon in college and I knew from the beginning that I didn't have ADD or ADHD. It was totally a a mood altering substance that I enjoyed that I abused. I especially started taking it for the for the delivery driver job that I do. It always kept me up, kept me going, kept me talking. And then it went from taking it just at work to, well, I want to be up and going and talking at parties. And then I want to be up and going and talking to myself all night, two, three nights on end. And I really thought I had it going on as far as moving quick and talking quicker and walking faster and, and doing all those things. And then once. I got off of it, I realized that I had even started to find out while I was still using it. Per se, at the end of my days at work, I would be doing routes in which I, at which I would finish usually at like three or four in the afternoon. Well, I'm eating all this Adderall all day in the back of my truck, and I'm finishing these routes at like six or seven at night. And here I am taking this thinking it's making me go faster, and now I'm taking three or four more hours to finish the route, when before I'm getting done two, three in the afternoon, no problem. Wow. So when I was when I was off of it, I started to realize that the Adderall was actually making me less organized. It started to go the other way. At first, was I super organized? Yeah, but then I, as I started to abuse it, as I started to lose sleep because of it, as I started to stri- you know string myself out on it, I realized that I was actually going slower. And this wasn't like this isn't me telling myself now like oh you were worse because I'm sober now. No, the proof was in the pudding. I could it was. I could see the numbers being out at work on that route three hours longer than I would be if I was sober. Hmm. And to look back, to look back now and see like how erratic I was, I would start these, these projects around the house and I would do three, four projects at a time and I would finish zero of them, you know? So now like, am I always moving and jiving and talking as much at work? No, but I still talk and move fast faster than I was when I was taking Adderall and I have much stronger connections, you know, and I'm actually paying attention in conversations as opposed to thinking about the next thing that I'm going to say and not listening to a word the other person's saying. So I was lucky to, to be able to have a pretty good work, work ethic to begin with and uh, accomplish my job sober. And then when I started taking Adderall, it was strictly to enjoy the high of it. And then, I started to see the downfall, even while I was still taking it, but you know, I wasn't ready. I, I kept I kept popping it. And I'm now able to look back and see how detrimental it was. You know, I thought when I was taking it, I would joke with my coworkers and tell them I was on PEDs. It wasn't on PEDs, performance enhancing drugs. It was actually decreasing my performance, but I wasn't able to to really recognize that fully at the time. And now I look back and I have to laugh at myself. You know, I could have been home so much earlier from work and I'm telling my wife, Oh, I've got a lot of work, a lot of work. No I didn't. I didn't have any more work. I was just taking so much Adderall that I was out of control and I couldn't work because of that. As opposed to think you know, as opposed to thinking that, oh, it's really helping stay organized, which wasn't the case.
0: Lucas, a couple years ago, I read a book called Blitzed, which talks about the role that Adderall, and there it's called Pervatine, And I think Merck, it's a German company, developed it in 1921, I believe it's called Pervatine or Adderall. So the role that Adderall played with the German army in the Third Reich. And Adderall played a big part in the rise and the fall of the German army in World War II. It's an incredible book. It also talks about how medicated Hitler was. And again, the rise and fall of Hitler, just with all these medications that he was on. So yeah, again, I I was way more productive off it. And listeners, if you're thinking about leaving Adderall, I highly recommend it. I stray away from making those recommendations on a podcast like this, but those are just my experiences. So take that for what it is. Now, Lucas, um, one more question before we hit the uh, rapid fire round here. Actually, maybe a couple. Walk us through a sample day. Uh, of your life without alcohol and substances how do you do it
1: so i wake up i'm, I'm a creature of habit like a lot of people are I have, I have a pretty pretty solid routine i wake up take care of my dog whether i walk him or i we've got a really big backyard he likes to run around and chase the animals back there because we live in the woods so i let my dog out and then i make my coffee and then i've got these three little meditation books hazelden makes them i'm not sure if it's editing the, the company that writes them or but it's Hazelden, H-A-Z-E-L-D-E-N, is the one that's on all three. And they're separate kind of focused sobriety recovery books that have a passage for each day of the year. And you read them and they've got a lot of things from the program, but they've also got some things that are are even useful for people that aren't in, in recovery, just for living your day-to-day life. And I read those three passages and that really helps me commit to my sobriety and helps me put my sobriety first every day. It's a form of meditation, I guess you could call it. That only takes me a couple minutes, but I sit and I drink my coffee as I read those three books. I, I reflect on them, I feed my dog, finish my coffee. Um, after about like 20, 30 minutes of reflecting on those books, and then I go to the gym. The gym has been a massive boost in my confidence and my well-being. I mean, and it goes without saying, going to the gym will bring those things to you, but. I, I'm an athlete. I um, I was lucky enough. I played Division I, uh college football. And so I was always a major part of my life in being in shape. And, and then obviously, it wasn't a big part of my life when I was drinking the way that I was. So now I've gotten back to a routine of going to the gym six days a week. Um, I'm in there from about 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning. I take my work clothes with me. So after I'm done at the gym, changing my work clothes and I go to work. I'm lucky that my job is so physically demanding. I walk probably 10 to 15 miles a day as a UPS driver. So all you listeners think about your UPS man during Christmas when you're doing all those orderings because <laughs> we're walking a lot. So I do that and then I go home and I take care of my dog again. I I, I enjoy reading some books. Um, so sometimes in the afternoon I'll read because I don't always want to just sit there and, and watch the television, even though my wife probably thinks that's all I do. But I swear, I've been working on Moby Dick for like... A year now. And I know that's a ridiculously long time for people that read books, but if you've ever read Moby Dick, it's not the smoothest of, of readings. So I'll do that in the afternoon. And then I always cook myself dinner. I like that as well because that takes up about an hour of, of my of my evening and gives me something to focus on. I eat my dinner and, and my wife, first, depending on her work schedule, sometimes she works later at night. She'll come home and usually we'll spend time together talking. She loves to communicate and talk. Not that she talks too much. Believe me, she she talks just right and then it's, it's always what i need to hear way to save um,
0: yourself there lucas because i hope she's going to hear this podcast
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> you like that but um
0: i saw what you did so, there <laughs> yeah we do that
1: yeah and then i'm usually in bed by you know 10 11 at night sometimes if, if um if the pittsburgh penguins are playing the hockey team i'll watch them at night i look forward to, to that kind of thing too especially i look forward to it sober now because I used to have to watch the replays of the goals the morning after drinking and watching a game because I couldn't remember what the hell happened in the mm. game. But that's nice; I, I'm able to remember that now. Yeah, so I, I try to. I'm not a super busy person, you know. On the weekends, I'm I'm more of a homebody. I like to watch a lot of movies with my dog. My wife is very social, so she does her things. But it, it works because we've it's a lot of it's a good amount of give and take, and we we counter each other in ways that that make it make it work for us. So I try to structure my Monday through Fridays, and um, on Saturday afternoons, I actually volunteer my time at a horse farm, and on that horse farm, they run what's called the Northern Virginia Therapeutic Riding Program, and it helps people of all ages with different um, obstacles in their life use horse riding lessons as therapy. So depending on the skill level of the rider, sometimes I'm in the actual lessons, walking alongside the um kids usually when i'm in the lessons on the horse making sure that they're secure in the saddle and all that and if they don't need me in the lessons then i um i pretty much play farmhand i take care of the stables groom the horses i'll mow the pastures during the summer and spring um when they need it and that takes up a good chunk of my saturday and then on sundays i always go to an AA meeting that i chair and i actually um always go to see my dad and my stepmom. They live in the area on Sundays as well. So I try to have at least one thing a day, you know, whether it be the gym or the horse farm, work obviously takes care of itself, or going to see my dad that I have to be intentional about. And that helps keep the accountability as far as being there for those that I love, because I wasn't there for those that I love when I drank. And to have those in my day, it, it's, it's always a good reminder of, of why I'm staying sober.
0: And it sounds like you've got an AA meeting starting in 10 minutes before we hit the record button. You said you're waiting for an AA meeting to start, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am actually. I um, I got the day off today, so I figured I'd come up here and, and, and see my buddies at the AA meeting and, and, and get a meeting in.
0: Yeah, good stuff. So earlier, I thought you mentioned past lives. Uh, You didn't, but I'm going to bring it up right now (laughs) since you said the word horses. This is a wild thing that occurred to me in the last four months. So I was on a Joe Dispenza meditation retreat cruise, and I'm at a dinner conversation with a lovely couple from Mexico City, and there was supposed to be four of us. The fourth person didn't show up, so there's just three of us, and we're having this conversation in Spanish and the gal at the table, she just stops like mid-sentence and goes, oh, I just got pinged with one of your past lives, Paul, would you would you like to hear it? I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, why not? Let's hear this. She goes, okay, you were Pablo de Tarso in a past life and he was blinded in a horse riding accident, which tells me in this life, you might have a distaste for horses or you might not like horses, you may have had a bad experience, And I've got my hands on my head going, oh my gosh, I am deathly allergic to horses. I've been hospitalized probably three or four times due to horses. And when I told this to the gal, she didn't even flinch. She's like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. And where the plot thickens a little more is I've had another person, a separate person, a a spiritual teacher, shall I say, also confirm that I was the same person in a past life. It kind of rocked my world, Lucas, <laughs> but at least we know why I'm allergic to horses. I'm not supposed to ride a horse in this life. So got that figured out. <laughs> and, and listeners, uh, I got one more question for Lucas before we hit the rapid fire round. Lucas, what's an excuse that you used to tell yourself of why you couldn't quit drinking?
1: That I didn't have a problem. Oh. That it was, it was just, it was just, un- you know, unlucky that I drank too much the, the night prior. It was just that I didn't, you know what I mean? Like it was just a way to continue the behavior.
0: Yeah, I love it. It makes sense. I said the same thing. And we have hit the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Number one, are you ready? Yes, sir. Here we go. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey?
1: The light bulb moment I had on this journey is when I realized how much time I was spending pursuing the feeling that I was never going to attain again. I heard it in a meeting one time. The first time I got drunk, the rest of the time I was chasing. Mm. Once I realized how much time I spent chasing compared to the rest of the, of, of the time it, that I actually attained that feeling, which I never really did, I realized how foolish the pursuit truly was.
0: Lucas, what's your favorite alcohol-free drink?
1: Oh, uh, The lime-flavored seltzer water. I usually get that with actually a slice of lime as well.
0: And what are some of your favorite resources?
1: AA is is huge. The AA meeting near me, the meditation books that I own that I was talking about in the morning. And also there's an online community called In The Rooms that actually do meetings. Um, It's kind of like a Skype format and people share through that. And you don't have to share if you don't want to, just like any meeting, but you can get on there. They have meetings all hours of the day and night that you can get in and get a meeting in without actually physically having to go to a, a location that's holding a meeting.
0: Yeah. In the rooms. Great resource. And what's on your bucket list in an alcohol free life.
1: I need to travel the world. I hadn't had a passport till about a year and a half ago. Uh, my wife has traveled all over the first country I went to was Haiti actually. And um, cause we do mission trips down there. Uh, my wife and I, and we're going to Japan in September. And we had just gone to Costa Rica last year for our honeymoon. So I went from Haiti to Costa Rica and now I'm going to Japan. So I wanted to just keep on traveling and experience things on this journey that obviously I'd never got to experience before.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners?
1: I would say to remember and to remind yourself, as I was talking earlier, how vulnerable, how dangerous and how susceptible we all are when we live in unreality, when you continue to lie to yourself and tell yourself that everything's okay and that I'm invincible and that I can't be hurt, you will never be more open to potential extremely bad consequences. If you keep that door open to that monster of consequences or addiction or whatever you want to call it by lying to yourself and not realizing you're living in fantasy, that monster will kick the door open eventually might not be today. might not be tomorrow, but it'll happen.
0: And before we depart, Lucas give listeners your customized, you might have a drinking problem. If line,
1: You might have a drinking problem if you find yourself asking that exact question. If you find yourself asking, Do I have a drinking problem? You probably have a drinking problem.
0: It can be that simple. Lucas, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for sharing your story. I loved it.
1: Absolutely, Paul. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: So, according to studies, over the next 40 years, the average person will spend 520 hours watching TV series. 6 years watching TV, 8 years on the internet, 10 years staring at screens. Whoa. Well, what I can say of that is 10 of those 520 hours will be me watching season 3 of Ozarks on Netflix. Who's excited for that? It also shows the power of the drug industry and addiction. Okay, it's a great show. So 10 years on screens out of 40, 25%, and it's actually close to one third of your life if you account for sleep time. So you've heard me say that we are on the cusp. We've already started with the most prolific addiction of all time, which is technology. Now I want to be a realist. So again, this is me just planting the seed again to become aware of this. I'm not saying throw away your smartphones, but be aware of this. It's difficult to connect with our true inner self, connect with that wholeness that's always been there and always will be there, and connect with others while we're glued to the screen. And the departure for an addiction, dismantling the neural networks inside the brain that is the addiction is gonna require connection. But you first gotta disconnect with that before you can connect with other more altruistic means of departing from an addiction recovery elevator. Like always, I love you guys. It all starts from the inside out. Thank you.